Good morning, Dawson. What a joy and privilege it is to see you this morning, and uh, what a privilege it is for me to introduce to you our church family, our guest preacher, the dean of Beeson Divinity School, Dr. Doug Sweeney. Dr. Sweeney's accompanied by his wife, Wilma. They've been married for 36 years, coming this December, so we welcome Wilma also to Dawson along with her husband. Dr. Sweeney has been the dean at Beeson Divinity School for the last three years. He came to serve in 2019 after serving at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School as a professor of church history. He was there for over 20 years. He's a graduate of Wheaton College. He's a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And then his PhD is from Vanderbilt. He's a church historian by calling, by training. He has authored and or edited over 20 books. He's a foremost expert on the 18th century preacher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And he is with us because you know, Dawson, that uh, Beeson Divinity School has a unique connection to this church. I had the privilege over 20 years ago, Danielle and I moved to Birmingham. And the reason we moved to Birmingham was to attend Beeson Divinity School. And throughout these last over three decades, there are many women and men who have served and are serving on our staff that are Beeson grads. And so that institution has deeply shaped my life. It has deeply shaped many of those who have called Dawson home. And we're really grateful. Dean Sweeney, I'm grateful for your leadership at Beeson. It's a leadership that is marked, no doubt, by academic excellence. But one of the things is I've had the privilege over the last three years to know Dr. Sweeney and begin to call him friend is to see in his leadership a, a deep humility and a deep Christ-like kindness. And that's deeply encouraging to me, and I know you will be encouraged. So, Dawson, will you join me in welcoming Dr. Sweeney to share with us this morning? Thank you. Good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ at Dawson. Uh, I come to you today with a profound sense of gratitude to the Lord for Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. Uh, I have been thinking recently about the number of people from Beeson Divinity School and Sanford University generally who have been cared for so well by this church, who have been ministered to so powerfully by this church. Uh, there must be thousands. There are lots of them that I know personally, even now, uh, but for many years there's been this special ministry partnership between your church and our school, and I'm deeply grateful to the role that you have played in looking out for our people. Students, faculty members, staff members, administrators, board members, you name it, uh, they have come to be at Dawson Memorial. So thanks very much. I mean that sincerely. Grateful to you uh, for your ministry to us. If you have a Bible nearby, would you please pull it out? And if you would, put a finger or a bookmark in two different passages of Scripture. Uh, first of all, Romans chapter 3. And then secondly, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to preach today mainly on Romans 3, verses 19 through 28. And I'm going to preach about the Bible doctrine of justification 
by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, but I'm going to use two other helps to explain and then apply this passage of Scripture to our everyday lives. Uh, one of them uh, is Paul's account, Paul's testimony with respect to his own struggle to come to terms with this doctrine in Philippians chapter 3. And the other, very briefly, is just a little summary of Martin Luther's struggle to come to terms with this doctrine from the epistle to the Romans. Uh, partly because I like to sneak in a little bit of church history when I, when I preach, but partly, mostly, because Luther's story has been used by the Lord to help millions of people in the last 500 years come to a real, not, not, not just a, the right kind of mental understanding of the doctrine, uh, but a kind of heart sense for the doctrine, a familiarity with the doctrine and an eagerness to live out the doctrine from the gut, from the heart, from within. So uh, we're going to look at Romans 3, Philippians 3, Martin Luther. And one of the reasons why I think the Lord put this on my heart for today here at Dawson is because I spent a fair amount of time this year thinking about how our churches stand in need of reformation and revival. And by revival in this instance, I don't mean tent meeting sort of revival. I mean enduring, sustained, spiritual revitalization of the people of God as individuals and in our families, in our congregations, and in our communities. It occurred to me as I was getting ready to say this here at Dawson that Dawson is such a wonderful church the need I'm talking about here may not be seen by everybody sitting in this room. But I'm here to tell you that generally speaking, there are lots of churches that in the last several years have taken quite a beating and stand in need of a special visitation from the Lord. And I'm pretty sure that even you folks at Dawson would love to participate in a special work of God among his people one that sparks renewed commitment to serious, authentic, daily Christian discipleship. Our churches really are in crisis. I'm not chicken little. I don't like to talk about how the sky's falling. But our churches are in need. I think that's especially true in our Western world, but it's true in other places too. Many people have stopped attending church in recent years. An alarming number of young people doubt whether membership in churches even matters. We've got all kinds of polling data that suggests that. The young people report, not sure if this is true or an excuse or a little bit of both, but they report that their elders seem to be more concerned with wealth and power and status and control of worldly institutions and narratives and systems than about following Jesus. And of course, idolatry is not the special province of those of us who are older Christians. Many of us, young and old, exhibit misplaced priorities. And as I've been thinking about these things, I've been teaching a class at school on this man that pastor referred to named Jonathan Edwards. And the revivals in the 18th century that were wonderful and wide scale in which thousands and thousands of people came to Christ and many others experience spiritual revitalization. In Edwards' estimation, Edwards was a pastor and kind of a theological leader of those revivals. And in his estimation, his region's great awakening was caused 
at least to a large extent, by his church's emphasis on justification by grace alone through faith alone. These things went hand in hand back then, and I'm kind of hoping they'll go hand in hand in our context in the 21st century as well. In fact, as we'll learn in a little bit, the very Protestant Reformation itself in the 1500s was shaped profoundly by the teaching of this doctrine. That's why I want to use Luther's story in just a minute to make that point. In lots of times and places in the history of the church, Scripture texts like Romans 3, our text for today, and special seasons of renewal have gone hand in hand. So I thought I'd preach about this passage here at Dawson today, using just a little bit of history to illustrate its teaching in the hope of sparking your interest in praying for and maybe working on as well renewal in your own life and walk with the Lord, in your own home, among your family members, in your own church, and in the society at large. All right, have I given you enough time to find it in your Bibles? Romans 3, let's read verses 19 through 28. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Wow! I want you to feel the force of what Paul's teaching in that text. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. And it's an amazing thing for Paul, in particular, Saul of Tarsus, to confess. Can you remember a little bit about the story of Saul of Tarsus from the book of Acts and from some of Paul's letters in the New Testament? He's more commonly known as Paul, same guy. For although Saul was his Jewish name, Paul was his Roman name and is used the most in the Bible. He was born sometime between 5 B.C. and 5 A.D. in Tarsus, Asia Minor, a major trading and cultural center near the Mediterranean Sea. Today it's in south-central Turkey. He was reared in a privileged and devout Jewish family. His father 
and thus Saul himself enjoyed Roman citizenship, which was a really big deal back then. They belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, like the first Jewish king. Who was that? King Saul, after whom he may have been named by his parents. He and his father were Pharisees, strict observers of the law. He was sent to Jerusalem as a boy for a first-rate education, and he enrolled in the school of Gamaliel, who was one of the best-known rabbis in all of Jewish history, and was raised according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as Saul said in the book of Acts. His first appearance in the book of Acts, in fact, was as a violent persecutor of the Christians. I persecuted this way to the death Saul said, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He observed the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And even on his famous trip to the city of Damascus in Acts chapter 9, during which he was converted, he was on his way to capture more Christians and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished as he would put this to the Galatians after he became a Christian evangelist, he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of our fathers. But then everything changed. Saul encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was blinded temporarily. He fell from his horse. He was chastised by the Lord, but he came to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He underwent Christian baptism and spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel as a missionary to both Jews and Gentiles, becoming the last and most influential of all of Jesus' apostles, an apostle untimely born, as he said to the Corinthians in a passage made famous later in the Shakespeare play, Macbeth, put his story in a nutshell, Saul came to the earth-shattering doctrine in our scripture text from Romans 3, the hard way, through years of life and death struggle. He was raised to believe that Jews are saved by doing the law, keeping covenant with God, but came to see that all have sinned and fallen far short of God's holy standard. None of us is good enough, holy enough, to merit justification, but God in His mercy has provided a better way. We're saved not by our holiness, not by being good enough to live up to the standards of our perfectly righteous judge, but by faith in the righteousness of God given to us on account of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the high and holy demands of God's law and then sent His Holy Spirit to unite us with Himself in His life and death and resurrection and seat at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. It was just, it was just depicted so well in these baptisms. As Paul had written to the Corinthians just a few years before he wrote this text we read from Romans, Christ Jesus has become to us or for us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord 
or he, as he would come to make sense of his life story to the Philippians and the other passage. I hope you got a finger in or a bookmark in. Let's look at it now. Philippians chapter 3, I'll read 4 through 11. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The New Testament Greek word there is also translated dung. Rubbish is kind of a polite translation of that word. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. God's message to us today is this teaching of the Apostle Paul, underscored by Luther in a little church history. God wants all of us to get over the problems that come from legalism, legal self-justification, and our bondage to sin, which we think about too much. He wants to free us up by the gospel to live for him in joy and peace trusting in his providential governance of our lives so we can participate in the suffering that actually does save the world. Not the psychological suffering that comes from our self-absorption, but the redemptive suffering of Christ. Spending our lives, giving our lives over to God and neighbor in a Christ-like way. Indeed, a cross-shaped way. What we call the way of the cross, informed by the knowledge of God found in Holy Scripture, is the way of reformation and renewal. Luther, like Paul before him, came to this realization the hard way. And after reminding us of this, just a couple minutes, reviewing Luther's conversion from legal fear to gospel freedom, I want to do two things by way of applying this teaching to our everyday lives. First, I want to ask whether you have undergone this conversion from self-justification. And second, I want to encourage all of us to walk the way of the cross with Luther and with Paul and most importantly with Jesus. It's the only way that sinners have of finding genuine love, joy, righteousness, and peace. All right, so let's review Luther's story as a way of illustrating this teaching of the Apostle Paul. 
before we come back and conclude and apply it to our lives. Martin Luther was born in 1483 to devout Catholic parents, Hans and Margareta Luther. Hans Luther was a miner. He'd come from peasant stock, but was upwardly mobile as Luther was growing up. He had been one of the guys who just did most of the physical labor in the mines when he was young. But as Luther's growing up, he takes out an interest in some smelters and some mines. He becomes entrepreneurial, sort of pulls himself out from under the old medieval feudal system that we all learned about in school, uh, and becomes a kind of an upwardly mobile leading citizen in the town of Mansfeld, Germany. They even put him on the town council. And this upwardly mobile Hans Luther had big plans for his boy, Martin. He wanted Martin to be a lawyer because that would help the Luther family ascend the social and economic ladder further. So he sends little Martin to all the best boarding schools in their part of Germany. Luther's a smart boy, and he does very well in these schools. And then in 1501, Martin Luther is sent to the University of Erfurt to prepare for a career in the law. All the while, Luther is also a spiritually sensitive boy who thinks about himself probably more than he should have and lacked an under, a biblical understanding of God as a loving father and savior. We know this because he talks about it a lot later on in his life. He says, when I was growing up, my parents were strict disciplinarians. We believed in God. We went to church. That wasn't the problem. I just was raised to believe God was a righteous judge who was really angry with me for my sin. And I was raised to feel like I could probably never be good enough, not just to satisfy my father's desires for my career, but more importantly, to placate my heavenly father's high and holy standards of righteousness. These feelings that Luther came to experience, especially as adolescence heated up in his life, produced in him what he called in German, Anfestungen. That's a plural form of the, word, the noun Anfestung, which is a word that means anxiety, dread, fear, worry. And in Luther's case, this was dread, fear, and worry about his standing before God. Luther goes to the university, does very well, gets his bachelor's degree, gets this close to having his master's degree and a career in the law established for him. And all of this Anfestung culminates in him. There's a famous story that I bet some of you have heard that's set in the summer of 1505, right as Luther was about to finish his time at the University of Erfurt and become a lawyer. Luther had visited his family back home in Mansfeld, Germany, was on a horse by himself, heading back to Erfurt, Germany, where the university was. His mind, his soul was just plagued by doubts about God's love for him. In fact, he'll tell us later in his life, at this season of my life, I actually hated God. And I thought, I'm surely going to hell for that. He's on his way. He's by himself. A thunderstorm, a fierce thunderstorm breaks out. 
Lightning is striking all around him. Thunder's clapping all around him. He really does think he's about to die. And I believe, he believes that if he does die, he's going straight to hell. So he cries out in a prayer, not to God the Father, not to Jesus, but to Saint Anne. Saint Anne was the patron saint of the miners in that part of Germany. In Catholic tradition, she's the mother of the Virgin Mary. And Luther felt like he didn't deserve to be able to pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So he's going to ask Saint Anne for a favor. And he says to Saint Anne, if you save me from this storm, I will become a monk. Well, of course, you know, Luther survived a storm, and he made good on his word. He became a monk, angered his father terribly. He says later on, my father just went berserk. He could not understand why I could possibly have done this, disgraced the family, disgraced his heavy investment in my life by leaving a career in the law to join a monastery. But joining the monastery for Luther represented an opportunity to grow in holiness and maybe get good enough so he could feel like he had some peace with God. He could feel right with God. To join the, he joined the strictest monastery in Erfurt, by the way. So he's wearing, from that point forward, very uncomfortable clothes, eating poor food, spending hours and hours every day confessing his sins to a priest spending hours and hours every day doing penitential deeds in response to the confession. He's thinking, maybe these counsels of perfection, as they called them back then, taking the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience, mortifying the deeds of my flesh. I mean, he literally whipped himself, the flagellus, we call it self-flagellation. He was battling, he was trying to mortify, put to death the deeds of his flesh to free his spirit up to be right with God. But it just wasn't working. And Luther was beside himself. And there were some wise older men in the monastery who realized this guy's about to go crazy. So one of them, the man who was in charge of his monastic order in Germany, sent him to a university and said, we want you to become a Bible professor. So you're going to go get your doctorate. And then you're going to teach everybody the Bible at this new university they were founding in the town of Wittenberg, Germany. And then the idea was, that'll keep you so busy, you won't have time to think about yourself and your own sin very much. Long story short, things didn't turn out like his superiors in the monastic order imagined they would, but they were right that this Bible study, this intensive Bible study, is what would help Luther finally to break through to a clear understanding of what the Apostle Paul is teaching in texts like the ones we're studying today. Luther finally came to understand as he was put in charge of teaching a bunch of young people the book of Romans. That was one of the books he had to lecture through in the 1510s. The book of Galatians, other books of the Bible that were full of gospel truth. Luther finally came to understand that the righteousness of God is not a righteousness he had to live up to by being good enough. But it was something that God gives those who turn to him in faith, put their faith in him. So Luther came to see with Paul that the righteousness that saves us, the righteousness that frees us from our sin, 
It's not our own righteousness. It's God's righteousness bestowed as a gift by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells the people of God and bears divine fruit in our lives. All other ground, as our famous hymn says, is sinking sand. All right, let's bring things back now and ask the question, so what does this have to do with us? We don't live in the 1500s. We live in 2022. I want to contend that this Bible doctrine has a great deal to do with us. For although lots of us in this room have probably heard Paul's story told before, a few of us have heard a little, about, a little bit about Martin Luther. I think honesty requires that we admit, in the words of Paul Simon's kooky love song, we are still crazy after all these years. Some of us have gone to church many times before and still never trusted Christ for gospel freedom from the forces of sin and death and the devil, as Luther liked to say. If I'm talking about you, please trust in Christ today. Life is too short to waste your time living without him. Come and see me or somebody else you trust after the service. And many of us who have trusted Christ for liberation, now I'm talking about a lot of us in the room, myself included, often live as though we don't. As though we're making our own way as though we're guaranteeing our own future, as though we're justifying ourselves. And this is rank hypocrisy. You might not have gone to the extremes of Paul or Luther, persecuting people or flagellating ourselves out of misplaced zeal. We might not have thought that we could earn God's good graces or be good enough for heaven. But I bet you have felt the fear, the anxiety, the bondage to sin and death that stem from subtle forms of self-justification, of moral self-absorption, of striving to be indispensable to those around us, impressive enough or rich enough or nice enough to guarantee success and salvation from the problems of the world. Would you grant that you sometimes struggle with these things, trying to live your own way, make your own future, rather than give your life over to God? I know I have. Let's be honest about some of the ways in which we justify ourselves, making our bondage to sin worse. I put a few of these that occurred to me up on some slides, be up behind my head here. I'm hoping one or more of these slides will connect with your experience and you'll see, oh boy, Lord, please help me. I do struggle with that tendency. But if none of the slides that I thought of connect with you, let me encourage you, think about how it is that at your worst moments, you have this ongoing tendency to try to justify yourself. Some of us believe that if we're basically good people, avoiding the biggest sins, treating others with respect, doing good deeds from time to time, God will let us in heaven. Others of us know this is wrong and pride ourselves on right belief. Being good Protestants, avoiding blatant hypocrisy 
distinguishing ourselves from big talkers, from holy rollers. Some of us spend too much time impressing other people, relying on our reputation for assurance that we're right with God. Others pretend we're martyrs. We don't actually die for Christ, of course. But we do more for others, our children, spouses, family members, neighbors, friends, than any of them does for us. And the more we feel overwhelmed with all this godly busyness, the more we feel right with the Lord. Some of us hedge our spiritual bets with outsized retirement funds, hoping one way or the other we'll be safe and secure in the end. Others, who would never think of bragging about themselves, take excessive pride in their children, feeling that surely their kids' success is a sign that they've done something worthy of favor with God and man. Many young people themselves put their trust in AP classes and college admissions or lifestyle choices and peer groups, other signs that they're lovable, attractive, acceptable to others, to God, to their parents, to their friends. And yet many of us at every age are plagued with anxiety. Like Luther, we're all too often burdened with Anfestungen. Our self-justification does more harm than good. Our kindness, intelligence, diligence, lovableness, these things are not meant to save us. They're not meant to free us up from sin, fear of death, self-consciousness, despair. In fact, when done by our own strength, our good deeds ensnare us. And young people today know this truth as well as anybody. You know, according to the American College Health Association, 29.6% of college students today have been diagnosed with anxiety. And according to the Association of University and College Counseling Center Directors, 59.2% of their college student clients report anxiety as a primary concern. Now, of course, I'll be the first one to add, some of this is physical, it's physiological, it has nothing to do with our sin. Some requires medicine prescribed for us by doctors. And some of it is best addressed by caregivers and friends. But some of it is spiritual and calls for a medicine that comes from the Lord. So what should we do about this latter kind of spiritual oppression? Quit justifying ourselves. Quit striving to be good enough to earn the love of God, or anyone else for that matter. Let's quit trying to manufacture the kind of future we think best, the kind of peer group we think best, the kind of identity we hope the right people will admire. Let's encourage one another to receive Christ's righteousness and trust Him for our futures, both on earth and then in heaven. Let's identify with Him and let Him provide our peer group and our ultimate sense of belonging. As the Lord Jesus says in the Gospels, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life by grasping for it in self-justification is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's lose our lives for Christ. It's the best way to participate in spiritual renewal. Like Paul and Martin Luther, let us lay our anxious efforts at the foot of Jesus' cross, counting them rubbish or dung when compared to the righteousness that comes from God through faith. Let's be found in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Philippians, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ that we may know him and the power of his resurrection over sin and death, self-absorption, self-justification. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so as to find abundant life. Will you pray with me?